Part 2 for the story of King Yehoiachin, also known as King Yehoniah, the penultimate king of the Jewish people. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding Yerushalayim, with a massive army, and then him himself approaching and telling the sages that he only wanted to capture King Yehoniah, and he, if they gave him over peacefully, and there was no war, he would leave Jerusalem alone, he wouldn't take anyone else, he wouldn't harm the temple, he wouldn't he wouldn't do anything else. All he wanted was this three month and ten day king, and then he would return back to Babylon bringing the king in tow, but he had nothing else, no other desires to of anything in Israel. And so the sages believed him, went to the king and begged the king to give himself up and to their surprise, I'm, I'm sure to their surprise, and to the surprise of pretty much everyone, King Yehonia agreed. He wasn't righteous. In fact, the verse literally straight out says he was extremely wicked. And yet he decided to give himself up for the good of the Jewish people, assuming that only he would be taken and everyone else would be freed and no one else would be hurt and nothing would be harmed. He returned the keys back to Hashem, throwing them famously into the air and the keys being received in heaven, which is again a tremendous miracle that was viewed in public. But now let's actually deal with the numbers of the of this this um this exile because of course as we mentioned in the previous podcast, Nebuchadnezzar lied. He had no intention of keeping his word. Once the doors were open and Yehonia came out, Nebuchadnezzar marched right in and sacked the temple and took a tremendous amount of captives. It wasn't just the number, which we'll talk about in a moment, but as we mentioned in the previous podcast, it was the value. It was social cripple to the, it was a crippling to the social and economic structure of the Jewish people. He took the most valuable, most prominent, most influential, most deep thinking people of the entire kingdom and so he lay he lay complete ruin to the nation even without destroying them and it was very premeditated he knew exactly what he was doing now the question is who exactly were the Kheresh Vahamaska because this exile which happened 11 years before the actual destruction and we'll talk about the destruction soon but the actual this moment 11 years earlier is such a pivotal moment in Jewish history famously known as the Golos Kheresh Vahamaska and the question is who exactly was taken so Yehonia, King Yehonia, the actual reigning king, again, hadn't been reigning to two, for, for, for very long. His father had been brutally murdered three months and ten days earlier. So Yehonia was taken, the new king. His mother was taken. His officers and ministers, the king's wives were taken. And the ministers and nobles of the land. The verse really goes to great lengths to describe the people that were taken into exile along with King Yehonia. It wasn't just him by himself. And the verse also says like this, it says, all of Yerushalayim, all the officers and all the mighty warriors, and here's where it gets a little interesting, it says 10,000 were exiled, and the Cheresh Vahamaskar. And the verse then continues, it says, there were nothing, remained none but the poorest of the people of the land. Nebuchadnezzar took anyone that was worth anything, made sure that they were on that, that exile to go out of Israel and to go to Babylon. 
The following verse, very interestingly, suddenly starts recording more people. It says 7,000 members of the military. The Cheir Shemaskar, 1,000. The Giboyer Oysa Muhammad, the Mighty Ones, 2,000. There's a whole discussion. Is that, is that, is the total number of this exile, was it 10,000 or was it 20,000? Like the breakup of the numbers, it was that a part of the 10,000 or this 10,000 plus 7,000 plus 1,000 plus 2,000, which equals 20,000. It's a very interesting discussion. But regardless, you can see, it, firstly, it wasn't just a few people. It was a, a sizable amount of people handpicked, the finest of the fine, creme de la creme of the Jewish people. And as we, again, mention now, it wasn't just the... The artisans, as you know, Cheresh Vamaska literally is the craftsmen and the artisans. That's the literal translation. That's most certainly not what it was. It wasn't just artistic people. There are opinions that say that, but I mean, the, the very strong thrust throughout Jewish history and throughout the, the Gemaras that discuss this and the Megillah story, as we're going to mention in a moment, the thrust is the Cheresh Vamaska were the finest rabbis in history. These were the greatest men. Two people who example, and just by using these examples, really gives us extreme, a really extreme idea of who these people were. Yecheskel Hanavi, Yecheskel ben Buzi, was one of the Cheresha Hamaske. He was one of the people exiled with King Yechania. Mordechai Hatzadik, the famous hero of the Megillah story, was also one of the, one of these rabbis that were exiled together with King Yechania. So it was really the greatest of the greatest. Now when you have these two among the members and you realize there's 10,000 people exiled, exiled, you can understand why this would have created extreme um, ruin to the Jewish people. The greatest rabbis left. And that was it. It was just left of the poorest of the, of the Jewish people, all left in Israel on their own for the, for the remaining 11 years. There's a Gemara in Sanhedrin and Gittin. It's pretty much the same with slight differences. And the Gemara actually says, what does Cheir Shvahamaska mean? Very strange. Why would they call rabbis craftsmen and artisans the 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 verse should have just said and he took the rabbis he took the greatest rabbis he took the sanhedrin well, you can use so many different languages but why does it say so the gemara actually says really interesting i'll read the words of the gemara because it's really interesting it says and maske it's like this harash it, it means a deaf mute. When these rabbis would introduce a statement in Torah, they would come and they would say, I have some Torah to say, everyone become like a deaf mute. People were so in awe and so nullified to these rabbis that they literally stopped talking the second these rabbis started talking. These, these Cheresh and Maska rabbis were the creme de la creme, the greatest rabbis in Jewish history. And they, they were all exiled together in this, in this massive betrayal from Nebuchadnezzar, they were all exiled together. Maske, why, was, why were they called Maske? Because once they closed the matter, once they said, you know, this idea in Torah is settled, you know, they had, this, they had a discussion in Torah, and then they, these rabbis would settle it, no one would ever introduce this topic again. They never, they never discussed it. They said, yeah, it's already been settled. They, they were so reliable, and they were so authoritative, that no one would um, question or reopen a discussion that these rabbis had opened up. The Rebbe actually discussed this. The Lubavitcher Rebbe discussed it in a, in a Purim um, Fabrengen in the year 1968. And the Rebbe said like this. The Rebbe says, the accomplishment of the story of Purim is the idea of self-sacrifice. The Jewish people were inspired to give up their life for Hashem. 
They said, even though Haman's decree possibly might not apply to us if we go away from God, they said, we're accepting the Torah, and they gave themselves, the entire generation all gave up their life, self-sacrifice, and they said, we don't care what happens to us, even if Haman's decree actually goes through, we're dedicated to God. And the question is, of course, who taught them to do this? And, I mean, anyone that's read the Megillah story, Mordechai Yehudi, he was the one that was, that was the one that inspired the Jewish people to have this self-sacrifice. And the Megillah itself testifies that Mordechai was exiled with King Yechaniah in the actual Megillah, if you read it. Or if you haven't noticed it, the next time when you get to the Megillah, you'll notice that it says, when introducing Mordechai in the Purim story, it says, he was exiled together with King Yechaniah in the Cher Shomansky. Exactly this story right now. So, the, the Rebbe says, what gave Mordechai the power? And how did he get this power to inspire an entire generation to give up their, their life? The Rebbe says, it's the power of Torah. The fact that he was one of these Cheresh and Maska, and Cheresh and Maska, the, the fact that they're rabbis, and the fact that, that, that when they would introduce a, a topic, a statement in Torah, everyone would become like deaf-mutes. And when they closed the topic in Torah, no one would ever introduce it again. These were people whose whole life was Torah. Mordechai was one of these people. And because his whole life was Torah, he had the ability to inspire an entire nation to literally give up their life, put their lives on the line in order to, in order to be Jewish. So it, it really shows you what type of people. Mordechai was one of these people. He might have been the greatest of them. He might have been the head of the Sanhedrin. But he was one of these members of the Cheresh Hamaskeh. And now it really starts to show you if all of those types of people all were left, were all exiled together with the king out of Israel, this really devastated the Jewish people. They were brought to Bavl as, as a prisoner and King Yechania was imprisoned. The rest of them, it doesn't sound like they were in prison, but King Yechonia very much was in prison. He was imprisoned in a tiny jail cell. It didn't have a door, and it was designed in such a way that the prisoners were never, they were, they were only, they were, they were designed to go one way, into jail and remain there for the rest of their life. And so it was, there, was no, there was no door, because there was, you know, no one needed to come in, in and out. They just lowered food in, and that was, that was pretty, pretty much it. What's really interesting to note is they did, archaeologists did excavations, and they found the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and underneath the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, they found a system of, of, of tunnels and structures, literally that, of little prison, dungeons, little dungeons, and the... They had a, a, a system of chains that would enable the, dun- the prisoners down into the dungeons because there were no doors. It was literally chain systems enabling the prisoners to go down in, in such a way. And as, as we'll get to later on in the story, you'll see why this is very important and why this really matches up exactly to our story. And they literally, they discovered, archaeologists discovered this in Nebuchadnezzar's um, ruins of his castle. Meanwhile, while... King Yechania had been exiled together with 10,000 other, other of the greatest and finest of the Jewish people. Nebuchadnezzar, on his way out of Israel, he didn't destroy it. He, he laid ruin to it. I mean, he, did, he took so much valuables from the temple, but he didn't actually destroy the temple just yet. And he didn't, he didn't go on a massacre just yet. That was going to happen soon. So on his way out, he needed to appoint a king because, you know, if, if the Jewish people were disappointed, it, it would, it, he wouldn't have as much control. Him appointing the king, that showed that he was in charge. So on his way out, he decided, you know what? Let me appoint the uncle of the king. So now let's go just back a second to the introduction I gave at the very beginning of the previous podcast. King Yoshiyahu had three sons. 
The oldest son, according, well, we'll get to the different opinions, but the, 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 the first son to be king, let's just go in the order of the king, kingship, was King Yahyahaz, and he was taken off to, to Egypt. The next king was King Yahyakim, and he ruled for 11 years, and again, we spoke about the, the wickedness and his behavior throughout his tenure. And then once he was take, once he was killed, his son became king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and appoints the third son of King Yoshio, so the uncle, essentially, of the king who he just brought into exile. And his name was Matanya. And instead of keeping his name, he decided to call him Tzidkiyahu. And Tzidkiyahu, it's understandable why he'd call him Tzidkiyahu. Firstly, he changed his name as a, you know, it's a, it's a very powerful uh, power play. You know, I'm changing your name. But additionally, Tzidkiyahu means righteousness. And so he he had a very close rela- relationship with this with this king Nebuchadnezzar did, and so he appointed him king. And there's different uh, there's a discussion exactly when he became king. If he says he was 21 years old, there's 35, maybe he ruled for 11. He, he ruled for 11 years, and his mother's name was Hamuto Basimio Melivna, and he had the same mother as the first as as his oldest brother. There's a big discussion. I just want to touch upon it because it, it, it is quite complex, as you can already start to see, who exactly King Tzidkiyahu was. There's three primary opinions. One opinion says Tzidkiyahu was the crown prince of King Yoshiahu. The father, who was so righteous, who we discussed at the very beginning of the first podcast, he had three sons. The, the Two of them weren't righteous. One was. This Tzidkiyahu, the final king of the Jewish people, was extremely righteous. So the righteous father naturally wanted King Tzidkiyahu to be king. But the Jewish people kind of took things into their own hands and they appointed first King Yahyachaz. And then King Yahyachim was appointed. Then King Yahyachim's son was appointed. And now the actual oldest son, who was the primary choice of King Yoshiyahu from the very beginning is now finally getting his turn to rule, and he was going to become the last king of the Jewish people. There's another opinion that Sikio was the son of Yahyakim. So he wasn't actually the uncle of Yahanya, the hero of our story, but Sikio was actually the brother. So Nebuchadnezzar came, took Yahanya away, and just replaced Yahanya with his brother, Sikio. And there's another opinion that says that Sikio was the son of um, Yoshiyahu, but not the oldest son. Rather, he was actually the youngest son, and so he, you know, naturally was the next order in line, and therefore that's why he became king. Nebuchadnezzar said, "Yeah, he's next in line," so he he took it. So it is a whole big discussion exactly who Tzidkiyahu is, and I'm not really going to get into the details of the 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 opinions about you know why it makes sense each one versus the other one. But it's a very interesting discussion, and it's good to be aware of that discussion. King Tzidkiyahu was extremely righteous. It's really interesting the final king was so righteous because that was he was going to be the king during the actual destruction of the base of Migdash, but he was extremely righteous. And what's really interesting, Yehoiakim, who was the father of the hero of our story, he had been so wicked, but his generation was righteous. In this case, it was flipped. King Tzidkiyahu was extremely righteous, but his generation was very wicked. And King Tzidkiyahu's only fault, per se, the reason why he was punished is because he should have rebuked his generation, but he he didn't. He just kind of held back, and he was very, very righteous himself. But he didn't really he didn't really call out the people and tell them, "Listen, do tshuva, return to God, do repentance." And because he didn't call them and he didn't rebuke them, 
he's held responsible for their sins as well. So he was extremely righteous and so dedicated to God. And you look at the verses and it says, you know, it says about Sikyo, it says the different Hayamim, it says he did what was evil in the eyes of Hashem, his God. And the why would it, the reason is because he could have rebuked the Jewish people, but he decided not to instead. Additionally, Hashem, or maybe as a response to that, Hashem confused Tzidkiyahu's reasoning, and even though Yirmiyahu came to Tzidkiyahu and warned him, Yirmiyahu the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, Yirmiyahu Hanavi, came and warned Tzidkiyahu, do not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Yirmiyahu told him in, in no uncertain terms, God, Hashem does not want you to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Keep low, stay under, underneath him, don't rebel. Hashem confused Tzidkiyahu's reasoning and made him foolishly ignore the warnings of Yirmiyahu. And of course, that was going to lead to the destruction of the base of During this time, the 11 years that Tzidkiyahu was king, and meanwhile, Yechania, of course, is still sitting in prison, Yirmiyahu continued to prophesy to the Jewish people, trying to re- inspire them to return to Hashem. Yirmiyahu has been alive for so long. He's been alive, literally watched five kings at this point, and he's begged the Jewish people the whole way through to return to Hashem, and yet it, it, it wasn't successful. There's a very famous prophecy of Yemiyahu during this time, and the reason I'm mentioning it is because it, it actually re- it relates to Yechania. The prophecy of Yemiyahu is like this. Hashem shows him a vision in the base of Migdash of two baskets of Bikurim. Bikurim were the first fruits. People would bring these first fruits to the base. I mean, it's a beautiful ceremony, and they would march up to Yerushalayim with oxen and with, with the fruits, the, the seven species of Israel, of course, inside the baskets, and they would dance, and they'd play with flutes, and the whole city of Yerushalayim would all come out and, and watch them. And then they would place the baskets in front of, in front of Hashem. So Yemiol saw a vision of Bikurim, in the vision, the word didn't sound like there were people. It was just the baskets themselves, two baskets sitting in front of the heichel of the Beis Hamikdash. And Yirmiyahu looks and sees that one of the baskets had very good quality fruit, figs, sorry, figs, and the other basket had very poor quality figs. It couldn't be eaten because of how bad it was. The rabbis actually even say it wasn't even that the the that the quality of the bad figs. Were you know compared to the good ones are so good that you know the bad ones looked you know the average ones looked bad you know sometimes that's the way it is. No, the good ones were incredibly good in one basket and the bad ones were horrible, not relatively horrible, actually horrible. And now in the vision in this prophecy that Yirmiyahu sees, Hashem asks Yirmiyahu what he sees. So Yirmiyahu says, "I see it. I see I have one basket that's good figs and one basket that's bad figs. It's so bad that it can't even be eaten. So Hashem tells Yemiel what the meaning of this vision is. Hashem says, as these good figs, so I value the exile. These people, these um, King Yechania and all the rabbis that were exiled with him who went to Bavel, this is I value them like the good figs. And Hashem says, who I sent to Bavel, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will return them back here. Hashem is kind of promising Yirmiyahu, all those people that went in the first exile, the exile of the Cher Shemaske, the, the exile 11 years before the destruction, Hashem says, I'm going to bring them back, I'm going to plant them, I'm not going to uproot them, and, and I will... And what's interesting is, many of the men 
who went in this original group, these 10,000 or 20,000, many of them went back. Famously, and we spoke about this in the podcast in Esther a few podcasts ago, Mordechai came back to the Beis HaMikdash. He was extremely old, extremely, extremely old. But Mordechai at Tzadik, after the whole Purim story was finished, and once the king gave permission, Ahasuerus died, and then the king gave permission for the Jewish people to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash, Mordechai at Tzadik came back and saw the Beis HaMikdash. Hashem, this is literally the prophecy that Hashem told Yemi, oh, that the good basket of figs are these people that I, the, the people that went out off into exile. And Hashem says, I will give you a heart to know me that I am Hashem, and you're my nation, I'll be, and I'll be your Hashem, because they returned to me with a whole heart. Hashem really loved the first, the first group of people, which represented the first um, figs. Unfortunately, the Hashem continues in the prophecy. Hashem says, the poor figs that can't be eaten, and, he, and Hashem says, this is Tzidkiyo and all of his nobles in Shalim. And then Hashem talks about all the horrible things that are going to happen to those people, the six forms of evil and disgrace, etc. And it, it's very tragic. And unfortunately, it happens exactly as Yemuel prophesizes. The Da Soifrim says that although many of them were far from perfect in the first group, the first group of people, obviously the Chesh and Maska were great robbers and great righteous Sadikim, but there were also other people, there were other military people, and there were, other, there, were, there were members of the royal family who were also exiled, but the exile made better Jews of them, and they became extremely beloved to Hashem. And this is what it's a very strong theme of this story, and we'll discuss that as we move along with the story. Hashem sent Nebuchadnezzar back. After the eighth year of Tzidkiyahu being king, Hashem sends Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar lays a siege on Yerushalayim. And Hashem gives three years, a three-year siege for the, during the first temple. Three years the, the Babylonian army surrounded the walls of Yerushalayim. And Hashem was giving the Jewish people, listen, you have a chance to do Tshuva, I'm not going to destroy it yet. But after three years... After three years of a siege, finally, in of of the year 3338 of the Jewish year, the base Hamikdash was destroyed, pillaged, the city was put to fire, the survivors were exiled to Bavel. So many people died. It was such a horrific situation. And literally, almost no one was left in Israel by the time it was done. A tiny community was left in Israel under the leadership of Gedalia ben Achikum, and that's a whole story of its own. Unfortunately, shortly after Gedalia was assassinated, which is so tragic. And again, a story I definitely want to explore in, a, in one of our future podcasts. Either it was Rosh Hashanah or the 7th of Tishrei. And the final tiny community after Gedalia was assassinated, they were so scared that they decided to run to Egypt. And they were warned by Yemiyol, don't go to Egypt. And unfortunately, they didn't listen. And it ended up very bad for them. And Yemiyol ended up eventually making his way, his own way to Babylon. Meanwhile, over all these years, the king, King Yechaniah, was in jail. He was imprisoned in a, in a tiny jail cell. King Sikyahu was also imprisoned in a tiny jail cell, but King Sikyahu had been blind. All his kids were killed in front of him. And um, um, Yechaniah, on the other hand, was, uh, was the Still, you know, he was still a king of the Jewish people, and he was in jail, and the rabbis understood that he was the future of the line of King David, the line of King David. And they didn't know what to do because that was it, he was stuck in jail. And they decided, the sages that were living in Babylon, they were living in Babel, decided they're going to start to work out some way to hopefully get a chance 
to continue the line. So they went to the Nebuchadnezzar's wife's nurse, and they asked her, could you go to the queen, and could you beg the queen, to beg the king, that to let the wife of King Yechaniah join him in the jail cell? And she agreed. She went to the queen of Nebuchadnezzar. So Medjish, Medjish even brings down a, a, a discussion of what her name was, whether it was Shmira, Shmirois, Shmiram. But she went to Nebuchadnezzar one night and said, you're a king. King Yechaniah is also a king as well. Yes, he, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm, so, I'm sure, as, as you're going to see, I, I, I assumed that he was a lot greater than everyone else. But, you know, he was... King Yechani is a king, Nebuchadnezzar is a, queen, a, a, a king. And Nebuchadnezzar's wife told Nebuchadnezzar, just as you want to have your wife around, he also wants to have his wife around. It's not fair that you're, letting, you're keeping him in prison for years and decades, however long had gone by. It's not clear exactly when this story happened. But Nebuchadnezzar's wife begs her husband, listen, let, let, let King Yechani's wife visit him. And Nebuchadnezzar agreed. So there's a discussion exactly how she was able to visit him. So some say that there was a barred window above the cell and they removed it. And others says that, the, that they made a hole in the ceiling and that's how they, that's how they lowered it. But they lowered her down with, they lowered her down in the cell. Again, the archaeological digs in the, in the, the cellars of Nebuchadnezzar's palace is absolutely fascinating. They lowered her down. And when she was lowered down to King Yechania, to King Yechania, she told him, that she she saw like a red rose, which was a which was a, a you know a very discreet way to say that she had the impurity of ziva, which is very similar to the status of nida, which basically meant she she told her husband I'm 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 not I'm not of I'm not in a, in a pure state right now, which means that we can't really be together, and that King Yehani had spent his his whole childhood and. Three months and ten years of his kingship, not caring at all about Torah mitzvahs, not caring at all about the, these types of laws in the slightest, the, the laws of 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 Taras and Mishpacha and and family purity, and King Yehonia now cared. He had returned to Hashem, and he decided that he's going to separate from her, and not be with her, and. They lifted her up. And now this was a one-time opportunity. There was no way to know if she would ever be able to get a chance to, to visit King Yechania again. And even so, and even though King Yechania very much understood the ramifications of this all, he decided that this is important to him. And this is, this is something that, which Hashem wants, taking, taking so seriously this, this mitzvah of, of family purity. And so she left. She counted seven days. She made herself pure. She went to mikvah, and she, then she was allowed to rejoin him. There was permission given for him to rejo- for her to rejoin him in the jail. When Hashem saw how much dedication King Yechania had, Hashem said like this: In Yerushalayim, Yechania was never careful about the about the mitzvah of ziva, about the mitzvah of family purity, and now he now he's keeping it. In Medrash Rabbah, Shabsi says like this, that in that moment, just for keeping family purity, Hashem forgave Yechonia for absolutely all his sins. The, the language of, of, of the Medrash says, In that instant, in that instant, 
Everything was completely white. His entire slate of all the sins. The Torah testifies that Yechaniah did horrible things. We, we don't have a list of them, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound good. And in, just in the merit of Taras and Mishpacha, keeping family purity, everything was wiped clean. In fact, to such a degree, Hashem did the Taras and Dharma. Hashem did a nullification of vows in the, in the heaven because Hashem had promised Yechania had uh, um, Yirmiyoh had made a prophecy. We discussed this earlier on that that Hashem said, I'm, "Even if Yechania is my signet ring, I'm going to tear him off, and he's not going to have anyone coming from him." And all of these things that Yirmiyoh had said, Hashem did Hashem did nullification of vows because he wasn't supposed to have any 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 children. And now Hashem wanted to give him children so in the heavenly court. Hashem said, "Let's do Atarasatam. Let's let's get rid of this vow because he he's he's pure now." And through an incredible miracle, as the Medrash describes, even though it naturally wasn't possible, Yechania's wife gave birth and had a son. And the son's name was Shaltiel. Shaltiel was also name, known by another name, by the name of Osir, which means, which means a prisoner, because he was conceived in a jail cell. And it's very interesting, because Divar Ayami makes it sound like there's two separate children that they had. But it's, it sounds from the Gemara that it was... It was only one child, but you know there was Shaltiel and Asir because it, you know there was different meanings to the to the name of his one son. What's really interesting is and it just shows you the power of one man who returns to Hashem, especially in something as special to Hashem as uh, family purity. At that t- time, when when he did Shuv, Hashem said about King Yechonia, he invoked the verse from Shir Hashem. It says, "Every part of you is fair, my beloved. There is no blemish in you." Hashem invoked this about Yechonia. He said, "Hashem just said about him, you're absolutely perfect," and which is it's just such a tremendous um, lesson about repentance and about the power of family purity. Nebuchadnezzar, although he was the agent of Hashem to destroy the Beis Hamikdash, Nebuchadnezzar was a horrible, dreadful person. There's, 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 there's no way about it. He did horrible, dreadful things, and at some point he has a dream. We had two dreams, but the first one was interpreted by Daniel, and then he has a second dream, and he understood that Daniel had successfully inter- interpreted the dreams before. He calls Daniel to interpret the to interpret his dream, and Daniel tells him that the dream means that he's going to be struck with insanity and he's going to live among the animals for seven years. When did this happen? This happened 14 years after the destruction of the Besamekdash, which, again, running the math, plus another 11 years, which means that King Yechani has now been in jail for 25 years. 25 years after King Yechani is in jail, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's interpreted by Daniel, who's very, very powerful in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, even though Yohan is still in jail, Daniel is extremely powerful, and Daniel is 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 an incredible righteous man who's a whole a, a whole discussion of another time. But Daniel interprets a dream to t- telling him that Hashem is punishing punishing him because Nebuchadnezzar started to believe that he was a god, and and that that's that's of course a horrible thing. Isn't it? But at the same time, the, the the punishment for that, Hashem said, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give him insanity. And also, Hashem said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from his family because of him believing that he's a god. In fact, two generations later, the, his family is going to get almost entirely wiped out and the kingdom is going to be removed from his family. 
Nebuchadnezzar was extremely troubled by Daniel's interpretation because he knew that Daniel's interpretation was precise and accurate. So he asked advice from Daniel, what should I do to stop this from actually happening? So Daniel told him like this, he said, redeem your sins with charity and you can push off your punishment. Daniel told him, listen, the, 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 the dream and the interpretation of the dream, it's accurate, it's going to happen, but if you want to push it off, then, then give charity. Charity will help you. The Rash, Rashi in, in the Gemara, in Saita, says that Daniel saw beggars collecting door to door. And even though he didn't want to help such a horrible man like Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want to give him an out. He saw so many people that were literally begging for food in Babylon. Jewish people that had come there. I mean, they weren't even refugees. They were, they were prisoners just schlepped out of Israel. And now they're going door to door collecting to eat, to survive. Daniel's his heart melted. And he said, you know what? Even though I'm helping a dreadful, horrible person, at least they'll be supported. What's really interesting is the... The Alter Abba in the Tanya invokes invokes these in these these words in chapter three of Nigerasa Chuba. When talking about repentance, the Alter Abba says if a person wants to give a gift to God after they've done repentance, a person might think that they could do fasting, because in the older days they were strong enough to do to do fasting. But nowadays it's absolutely forbidden to fast excessively because we just don't have the energy. And a person that's going to be ex- uh, fasting is going to be, it's sinning. He's, he's harming himself. He's harming his ability to learn Torah, his ability to function. So how does a person give a gift to God after they've done repentance? Because of course repentance has to be done on its own. Repentance means returning to God. It has nothing to do with fasting. But once a person's actually done repentance and they've, they've left their sin and now they're connected to God and they say, God, I want to give you a gift on top of it. The, the, the altar quotes this exact words that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that you could redeem your sins with charity. Give charity and that could be your gift to God after your truth has already been affected. So that's what he did. For 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar supported these poor Jewish people who literally had nothing to, nothing to eat. But at some point, he, he, he stopped. He lost interest. You know, nothing happened after 12 months. And so he, got, he lost interest. Additionally, he was walking on the roof of his palace. He saw the entire city below him. And he commented like this. And it's written in the, the, fourth, the fourth chapter of Daniel. It says, there, there is great Babylon, which I have built by my vast power to be my royal residence for the glory of my majesty. He, this is the this, this statement he made. And you can see it's a very egotistical statement. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He left his kingdom. He lived in the forest like an animal for seven years, exactly as Dan, Daniel had predicted. He ate grass like cattle. It's very interesting that even Ezra talks about th- this, this, this illness where a person actually believes that they are um, an animal, and they behave accordingly. There's even a, there's a medical term, a term, clinical lycanthropy. And, and Ibn Ezra talks about a, a case that he was familiar with, where someone actually believed they were an animal, and literally beha- behaved like an animal. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He believed he was an animal, and he, he, he moved around like an animal. He experienced a lot of, a lot of humiliating suffering, which is beyond the scope of this, of this class. His some of the descriptions that his body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until the hairs, his hairs grew like eagles. His nails were like the, the talons of a bird. He literally lived like an animal, eating grass among the other animals. And he, it seems like he believed he was an animal. It, it's, it's very complicated to understand exactly what was going on. But he left his kingdom and he was just, 
that was this was a, a really I guess, humiliating and hor- horrifying punishment. But he just lived out in the in the wilderness like an animal for seven years. Meanwhile, the kingdom had lost the king. The king has disappeared, and so the, they decided to appoint Evmeredach as the king. Evmeredach was his son. It's spelt E V I L, evil. So it sounds like he's an evil person. His father was very wicked. His son was very wicked. So you just imagine that. He was very wicked too, but actually it sounds like he was very good, even though his name was Evel Meroidach, he was he was a very good king. And he and he and his father was gone for seven years and he ruled the nation. And then seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity returns. He looks up at the sky, he recognizes God, and he comes back to his throne. And he discovers Evel Meroidach running his kingdom. Of course he threw Evel Meroidach into jail. And while Evermeroidach was in jail, he becomes friends with Yechonia and Tzitkiyo, who were also in jail at the same time. And in the year 3364, Nebuchadnezzar finally died on the day 25th of Adar, which was 26 years after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash and 37 years after Yechonia had been in jail. He'd been in jail for 37 years, for literally doing nothing. Nebuchadnezzar, he'd never done a crime against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar just came back and threw him into jail. And El Meredach now was freed from jail straight away as soon as his father died. He'd have been in jail, you know, since his father had returned. And he was so scared that, you know, his father wasn't really dead because last time he'd assumed his father had been dead or his father had permanently gone insane. Now he was so scared to take over his father because he knew if he took over his father and his father wasn't really dead, the, the, the ramifications would be dreadful. He didn't know what to do. So, so some opinions actually say he consulted with his friend, King Yechania. What should I do? And what he did was he exhumed his father's body to make sure that his father was really dead two days later. And he dragged his father, Nebuchadnezzar, through the street until his father's body was torn to pieces because he wanted... Firstly, to make sure his father was definitely, definitely dead. And number two, he wanted to make sure that no one had any misgivings about the way his own kingdom was going to continue. He wanted everyone to make sure that he... That they, that he wanted everyone to make, make sure they, that they understand that he was going to be running his kingdom very differently than his father. He was a, he was a sounds like a very upright king, and his father was a hor- horrifying evil man. And he wanted, by humiliating his father's body... This was a clear statement to the world and to his kingdom that his king, that his um, rulership was going to be very, very different than his father's. What's really interesting? Oh, why is it so important about the two days? Because if you if you look in the two sources that discuss the the death of Nebuchadnezzar, you have two different dates given. One given one is the twenty fifth of Adar, and one is the twenty seventh of Adar. So what's so well, the reason why the rabbis of course asked the question? Well, hold up. When did he when when did he die? The answer is he he died on the twenty fifth, but his body was exhumed, and you know he was he was um, you know schlepped and dragged all over the place until his body was all torn apart. Yeshaya Hanavi had prophesied that this would happen to Nebuchadnezzar a hundred years earlier. King and Yeshaya Hanavi, who we discussed in the first podcast in this in this series had he had he had prophesied that this is how Nebuchadnezzar he'd be dragged through the through the streets until he was torn to pieces king Sidkiyo and king Yechonia were both freed on that day on the 27th of honor of Adar. and on the day that king Sidkiyo 
was freed from jail. He had been blinded by Nebuchadnezzar already, but he was sitting in jail. On the day that he was re- freed, he passed away. He was buried with extreme honor, and he, he lived long enough to hear about the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar, but he died on that same day. But King Yechania was was very much alive. He was elevated to the second highest position in the power of, in the Babylonian Empire. Evamoredach would surround himself by kings, and all the kings were given thrones and chairs, all surrounding Evamoredach, who was you know the grand empire of probably the bulk of the world. And in his throne room, he had chairs of all the different kings. Thrones and the highest throne under himself was given to King Yechania. King Yechania was given extreme respect. And the Bible says he was provided with kosher food in his own residence. That, that get supported, supported um, by the king. The, the book of Malachi, the book of Kings, says that he was given an allowance every single day from the king. And what's so special about King Yechania is, he has the incredible honor of being the very last verses of both the book of Malachim and the book of Yemiyahu Anavi. Both of those two books finish off the books mentioning King Yechania. It shows you just how righteous and how pure and amazing it was that they finish off on such a high note to literally discussing the honor that was given to King Yechania once he was finally redeemed out of jail, how much Evel Meredach respected him and honored him and gifted him. That's how both the book of Malachim and the book of Yemiyahu um, finish off. One very interesting thing that I, I can't help but mention, the Rambam, when discussing the laws of Teshuva, the Rambam describes Yechania. He wants to give an example of how bad... Yechania was originally, and he describes it. He says Yechania, when he was wicked, it's written about him. This man is never going to have any um, success. And if 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 Koinahu, which is another name for Yechania, um, the son of Yoyakim, was a was a, a signet ring on my right ring, I would I would, I would um, take it off. And the Ramam then continues, and once he returned in. Exile. Once he did Teshuvah in exile, it's written about Zerubbabel, his son, which we'll talk about in a moment. And it's talking. It mentions when mentioning Zerubbabel, it talks about Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel, my servant of Hashem, and it gives him so much honor. So the Rambam, when trying to describe how powerful repentance is, he uses Yechania as an example because Yechania is just such a pure example of a person that came to Hashem. Now. This brings us into the final top, the final little discussion of of the podcast, and that is the continuation. Yechania was not supposed to have children, as Yumiyo had prophesied, and of course he does have a child. He has a child, a very righteous child called Shaltiel. Shaltiel has a son called Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was extremely important in the first wave of the return of the Jewish people back to Israel. The Jewish people returned, led by an incredibly righteous man, Zerubbabel. And it's so, um, it's so understandable why the Jewish people would have followed him back to Israel, because he's, he was a grandson of the last king, last living king of the Jewish people, of King Yechania. Zerubbabel was an incredibly righteous man, an incredible tzaddik. And according to the Abarbanel, Mashiach is going to be a descendant of King Yechania. So not only is Yechania to have children, 
according to the Barabinel, Mashiach is going to be his descendant. So even though Yemiyah said he's not going to have any descendants, and he's not going to, the kingdom's not going to continue through him, and no kings are going to be followed through him, and he's not going to, all of these horrible um, uh, predictions about Yechaniah, because he did Shuvah, according to some opinions, Mashiach is going to be a descendant of King Yechaniah, which is so incredibly amazing. Two final notes. Firstly, if you're enjoying this podcast, it's, it'll be of a great help if you're able to um, give five stars or give a, give stars to the to the podcast, whether you're on Apple Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, etc. And a th- second one, I just want to make a disclaimer so people understand. Although this podcast is a deep dive into the stories of King Yechaniah or all the previous people, it's hardly a fraction of all that there is to learn about King Yechaniah. I'm merely scratching the surface, and I strongly encourage people to continue to explore. There's so much more to learn about these great righteous people that I'm discussing, and I'm only giving just a little bit just to get a bit of a taste of what there is to learn about these incredible personalities in Jewish history.